Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In the past few weeks, the Supreme Court has begun to release some of the most important decisions of this extremely exciting term. To discuss them, we will be joined by our dream team, uh, who we turn to whenever we need to sort out the constitutional news. The decisions include those ranging from uh, the Masterpiece Cake case to cases about sports betting and the Fourth Amendment, and our dream team includes Michael Dorff, the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at the Cornell University Law School, and Ilya Shapiro, a Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Michael, Ilya, thank you so much for joining. Always good to be here. Good to be back. We will begin with the masterpiece, Cake Case, and Ilya, you have a series of excellent puns about how to cut it in your recent commentary. So why don't you begin by telling us what the court decided and how Justice Kennedy's uh, majority opinion for the 7-2 to two court is significant. Yeah, I, I hope I don't over-yoke it, right? <laughs> you can't um, resist, sir. You just so, jump right in. So this, this case decided, this opinion, yesterday's opinion, Monday's opinion, uh, decided none of the questions that people wanted answers from it. The big controversies about the intersection of the First Amendment and state anti-discrimination law. Is there a difference between uh, declining to serve gay people and declining to work a uh, same-sex uh, wedding? Uh, is a baker uh, an expressive activity or, or business such that uh, it gets uh, First Amendment or free speech protection? Does it matter whether the objection is on religious or other grounds? I could go on. None of these questions were answered. All that the court ruled, uh, and this is why it was called narrow, that there apparently on social media was a big uh, debate about how a 7-2 to two decision could be narrow. Well, it wasn't the vote count. It was the fact that it was essentially a, uh, a ticket good for this confection only, for this ruling <laughs> only, without broad uh, precedential value for future wedding vendor cases or intersection of gay rights and First Amendment or religious liberty or anything like that. Uh, what the court found was that the government commission, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, charged with enforcing Colorado's anti-discrimination law itself was discriminatory. That is, uh, expressed hostility to religion, had a, had a bias in that way, and had adjudicated cases uh, in different manners uh, if, if the viewpoint was religious versus uh, not. Uh, and, and therefore, the Baker won. Uh, but uh, this is not going to be extended to the, the next series of cases in this area. And indeed, um, uh, there is a case currently pending. I, I think this week's conference will take up Arlene's Flowers, uh, which is a Washington florist. Same exact issues. Presumably, the record doesn't have these anti-religious statements in it or, or what have you, so uh, maybe the court will be taking up the issue again sooner rather than later, although who knows whether Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, will still be on the court uh, to hear it. Thank you so much for that. Mike, in your recent commentary on the Masterpiece K case on Dorf on Law, you say the court did not rule in favor of the free speech claim, contrary to some of the commentary, but instead focused on the anti-religious bias that infected the administrative proceeding, and this could have implications for the travel ban case. Tell us about that. Just describe what 
Justice Kennedy held, and then describe the holdings of the major concurring opinions so our, office, so our listeners know the difference between Justice Kagan's opinion and Justice Gorsuch's opinion and Justice Thomas's opinion. Sure. So, um, first of all, I agree entirely with Ilya's presentation of the case. Um, the uh, I thought that the uh, evidence of anti-religious bias that the majority opinion pointed to was a rather uh, thin slice, if you will. <laughs> um, the court points to a statement by one of the commissioners on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission who said that, well, you can have your beliefs, but you can't bring them into your business. And that's just a statement of the general principle of uh, you know, that the court has attributed to the First Amendment saying that uh, you have a right to your religion, but you don't have a right uh, against a neutral law of general applicability like an anti-discrimination law. And then the other example was a somewhat unfortunate but uh, really rhetorical claim by one of the commissioners who said that there's been all kinds of discrimination throughout history that was justified by religion, uh, slavery, the Holocaust, and when that happens, it's despicable. Uh, he wasn't saying, as, as I read him, that religion is necessarily despicable, um, but that's how the majority reads it. So the idea here is that there is a uh, religious bias, and this infects all of the Colorado proceedings because the subsequent Colorado decision makers, basically the courts, did not disavow what this these commissioners said, and so you have to have a do-over or something. Now, uh, as Ilya says, it's not important in terms of the issue the court granted cert on. Maybe they'll address that question in this uh, florist case, uh, although maybe there are differences that are of constitutional moment between arranging flowers and baking a cake. Certainly, you don't typically have a message on flowers in the way you might on a cake. So we'll have to see. Uh, but uh, as you note, one of the things that I and a number of other people pointed out uh, in our commentary yesterday is that the case does potentially have some consequences for the travel ban uh, case where the constitutional claim of the plaintiffs is that the president's statements eliciting a bias against Muslims uh, infect what might otherwise be a permissible set of travel restrictions. Uh, and the court here in uh, Masterpiece doesn't go through a, um, you know, an attempt to figure out, well, would they have made the same decision in Colorado in the absence of these statements? They just say, well, here's the statement and they didn't disavow it. Game over. Uh, well, if you apply that rationale in the travel ban case, you might say, well, there are even clearer instances of religious bias, not just by one commissioner, but by the president who's in charge of the whole system. Uh, and he hasn't disavowed it despite various opportunities. And so you could uh, say, so that means it gets struck down. Now, there are ways in which the cases are distinguishable. For one thing, there's a question of standing in the travel ban case. For another thing, it involves people who are overseas and don't necessarily have the same rights. But to the extent that that's one of the arguments that's in play in the travel ban 
uh, litigation, I think it gets strengthened a little bit by uh, yesterday's decision. You know, now, Mike, least- th- that was so great. Uh, I know I asked you to discuss the concurring opinions, but I, I think I'm going to turn to Ilya for that, and then I want sure. you to respond, just so we hear his dulcet tones. Which Absolutely. Okay. So, so, so Ilya, <laughs> yeah, just in, in your explainer mode, and as dulcetly as possible, we have Justice Kagan, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Thomas, and then the Ginsburg dissent. What, what do they all say? Yeah, the real food fight here is in those <laughs> concurring and, and dissenting opinions. Uh, that's where you get a bit of the, the flavor of that future case <laughs> involving wedding vendors or, or otherwise, where they take up those uh, those meaty issues. Um, I'm an easy mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, Kagan has a very short concurrence joined by Breyer, saying she joins the opinion in full, uh, but uh, it's not to say that uh, had there been no religious, uh, anti-religious animus, uh, that the law couldn't be uh, applied uh, fairly and disagreeing with Gorsuch's concurrence, and he talks about how um, uh, the, 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 there's actually uh, the way that the, that the law was applied against uh, secular bakers who uh, declined to produce a, a religious, uh, religiously themed cake, how that's distinguishable, and Kagan basically telegrammed that in that future case, if there was a, a clean presentation of the issues without this uh, this, this uh, anti-religious bias uh, in the record, then she would clearly be uh, on the side of the of the state agency rather than uh, rather than the business. And uh, Gorsuch, joined by Alito, I think telegraphed that he would be on the other side. And then Thomas, uh, that was the the concurring opinion that, or the opinion of the whole. Uh, case that I personally wish would have been the majority. He's the one that delves into the free speech issue, which to me is more interesting than the uh, the religious liberty claims. Uh, talking about how uh, well t- the argument is, can you be compelled to produce this message that you object to? You know, setting aside the religious uh, aspects of it uh, and uh, you know, going into that uh, that whole debate, and then the dissenters. Uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor, they're not dissenting from Thomas's analysis or Gorsuch's analysis. They're saying that those uh, elements of bias or what the majority identifies as uh, hostility to religion, even if true, are not dispositive, or rather that the same action can easily be justified for non for, for proper motives, and though and, and therefore just because. Um, there were those statements by the commissioners, or even if they took took certain uh, the way that they applied the law in other cases, might not have been right here. Uh, they, they 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 plausibly neutrally applied uh, Colorado's anti discrimination law, and uh, and that was fine. And that perhaps uh, Ginsburg's dissent is probably the strongest argument uh, against what Mike was trying to do in reading the tea leaves in uh, seeing if there's any relationship between Masterpiece Cake Shop and the travel ban case because, well, if the majority was saying that these uh, elements of, of bias in the administrative record disqualifies the, the policy enforcement, well, is it really that Ginsburg and Sotomayor are going to be saying, oh, no, 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 those elements of uh, that, that evidence of bias really doesn't matter because it can be applied neutrally. So that's why I think they're going to decide what they're going to decide in the travel ban case, regardless of anybody's positioning here. Thanks so much for that extremely clear uh, description of the various positions. Mike, lots of folks expected a 5-4 to four decision. 
Why did the two liberals, uh, Kagan and Breyer, uh, join with Justice Kennedy in this pragmatic compromise? They did that as well in the sports betting case that we'll talk about in a bit. And what does that say about the dynamics on the Roberts court as well as the merits of the case? So uh, obviously, to get the real answer, you'd have to ask them. And they're not talking is my guess. Uh, Let me give a couple of possibilities. One is they were persuaded that this was the right answer in the case. Um, and that, you know, it just decided that they would have voted with Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor in the absence of this evidence of illicit bias, uh, but they were so convinced by it. Uh, I am highly dubious of that explanation, uh, partly because, as I said, I don't think there is very good evidence of subjective bias. As for the other idea that the commission somehow was acting in a way that uh, disfavored religion. Uh, I think if you delve deeply into it and just read what Justice Kagan says about this, it's pretty clear that that that's not true. Um, there was a, a after Mr. Phillips, who's the owner of the Masterpiece uh, uh, case, was was uh, brought up before the Civil Rights Commission. There was a fellow named Mr. Jack uh, who came before. Uh, the Civil Rights Commission, because uh, somebody approached him, and uh, I think I think he he approached three different bakers seeking to have a religiously themed anti-gay message on his cake, and people refused to bake him those cakes, and he lost his claim that, that he suffered religious discrimination, and so the uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion says, "Aha, there you have it. That's religious discrimination." Uh, But it isn't because the bakers who didn't want to bake those cakes were not doing it because they were religiously themed. They were doing it because they didn't like the anti-gay message. And that's ideological discrimination, which is not covered by the Colorado uh, public accommodations law. And therefore, it seems to me there's not a favoritism towards secular but against religious claims. It's just that they favor those kinds of claims that are set forth in the statute, which they're allowed to do. So, and Justice Kagan saw all of that, but she said, aha, that's not the reason they gave. Uh, so send it all back. And, and I'm, just, I'm just doubtful that that's her, her main view of it. Uh, you mentioned the sports betting case. I'd mention another case where both Justices Kagan and Breyer have done this, and that's the Medicaid expansion portion of the Obamacare decision in 2012, where they joined with the conservatives to make a sort of robust majority. Uh, one account of what they're doing here is, you know, they're playing ball or horse trading or, you know, suppressing disagreement because they want to have some influence uh, on the justices whom they might be able to win to their side in some other case. And I assume that means Kennedy and uh, Roberts. Uh, Now, if that's what's going on, I have to say it's a little shady. You're supposed to decide each case on the merits Um, And normally they do, which is why I also want to say, finally, uh, that I kind of agree with Ilya in his reading about Ginsburg and uh, Sotomayor, uh, that they're not signaling what they're going to do in the travel ban case. So I want to amend my prior remarks to say that the case ought to have implications for the travel ban case, but I don't think it will. Thank you so much for that. All right. Uh, it is time uh, to move on to our next case, and I think we should talk about sports betting because there here is another case where, as you suggested, uh, Mike, we have our uh, pragmatic justices, Breyer and Kagan, uh, joining with the fabulous uh, five uh, conservatives to hold that federalism values are implicated by Congress's attempt to 
require New Jersey to ban sports betting. Uh, Ilya, tell us about the holding and tell us about its significance, not only for the case at hand, but also for states' rights cases that progressives might embrace, such as medical marijuana and sanctuary cities. Yeah, well, in in this case, which is Murphy versus NCAA, it started off as Christie, but then Chris Christie, uh, his term ended as governor. Um, So it's Murphy versus NCAA. Uh, The uh, New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, um, uh, wanted to legalize sports gambling. And the problem was there's this federal law, 25-year-old federal law, called the Professional and Amateur uh, Sports uh, Protection Act of uh, of 1992, which um, prevents states from facilitating Sports gambling—it's a curious law. It's not—it's not a federal ban or making a federal crime uh, if you engage in sports gambling, but it, it says that states cannot uh, facilitate it. And there's exceptions or grandfathering for surprise, surprise, Nevada with Las Vegas and a couple of existing, pre-existing sports lotteries. And I think it's Montana and Oregon and maybe some other things in, in Delaware or some other place. But anyway, New Jersey was uh, out of luck, and so uh, they sued uh, and they wanted. Uh, uh, they wanted to, to legalize. On the, a rate on the other side was not just the federal government, but all of the four major professional sports leagues and the NCAA. Um, and uh, look, what happened was that federalism won the Supreme Court jackpot. Um, ultimately, the justices, 7-2, to two, as, as was mentioned, uh, in the first what's called anti-commandeering case in more than 20 years, the court said, look, uh, the federal government may or may not be able to uh, enforce its own criminal ban or regulation or what have you on sports gambling. That's uh, some future case that we'll may or may not look at. Uh, but you can't do it on the cheap. You can't tell states what they can or cannot legalize or regulate uh, or criminalize. Um, that is, uh, the federal government cannot commandeer state officials, whether they be uh, executive branch officials like police uh, or, in this case, legislative officials who want to change uh, state law. Uh, and so, um, uh, if the federal government wants to pursue federal policy, it either needs to pass its own law or bribe the states, which they do all the time, um, whether law enforcement or immigration enforcement, uh, or raising the drinking age. This is one of the one of the cases uh, that was uh, a big deal in the in the Obamacare litigation. If the federal government uh, offers lots of money to the states with strings attached, and the states go for that bargain. Well, that's kind of another way of the federal government uh, enforcing its policy. But again, it did not try to do that here. It just tried to tell states what to do, the court held, and uh, that's improper. Uh, same lineup um, uh, with uh, Ginsburg and, and Sotomayor dissenting. So what does this mean? Does this mean sports gambling is legal everywhere in the country now? No. It means that states are free to pursue their own policies, and uh, we're going to see a, a, a patchwork in, in different kinds of regulatory regimes in different places. Thank you very much for that. Michael, uh, uh, Dean Heather Gerken at Yale Law School is the head of a new school that some have called progressive federalism or, or states' rights for liberals that does argue that values of federalism are good for cities like uh, Philadelphia that want to be sanctuary cities or states like Oregon that want to legalize medical marijuana. Uh, should liberals be enthusiastic about uh, federalism? And in that sense, is Murphy good news uh, for progressives? And, and, and what should... Uh, we think about federalism in the wake of Murphy. 
in the short to medium run, I think it's, of course, true that when the Republican Party controls both houses of Congress and the presidency, that Democrats are going to benefit from robust federalism in the states in which they have majorities, just as Republicans would benefit in the states in which they have majorities in the converse situation. Uh, I therefore don't think that there is a clear ideological valence to federalism, although I think that over the long haul of U.S. history, based on the logic that James Madison set out in Federalist 10, it's more often the case that uh, progressives will be skeptical of uh, robust federalism and conservatives will favor it. And that's because Madison pointed out that you're less likely to have um, a, uh, you know, the ability to oppress minorities at the federal level than at the state level. But that's speaking over the course of centuries. Um, but just to, to make it sort of concrete, uh, the way in which the anti-commandeering doctrine in particular can be useful in the sanctuary cities context is that um, going back to the 1995 decision in Prince against the United States, court said that Congress and the federal government cannot instruct state and local officials to enforce federal law. And that means that if a state or a city within a state says, hey, we're not going to um, turn people over to the feds just because we think that they might be um, undocumented, they can do that. But I should add that you know, this is a short-term strategy because Congress does have a potent tool under the spending clause to tell states and localities, uh, okay, uh, if you don't want to help us, we can't force you to, but we can bribe you to do so. We can give you a lot of money uh, on condition that you cooperate or withhold money we were planning to give you already. Uh, if you don't cooperate. Now, there's a limit to that uh, that was articulated in the Obamacare case, uh, but that limit doesn't kick in until there's an enormous amount of money at stake. So I think in the short run that uh, Murphy against NCAA is probably good news for people relying on anti-commandeering arguments for defense of sanctuary cities, but I don't know how long that's going to last. Thank you for that. Ilya, in your commentary on the case where I have to, you're following, it was, the headline was Federalism Wins Supreme Court Jackpot, so you're following Michael Kinsley's uh, advice, sell every piece three times. Um, you said that uh, federalism is good for red states and blue states alike, uh, but you said the court did not decide uh, whether there's constitutional authority to ban in-state gambling, uh, despite the claims of uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor. Uh, give us, you're a, you're a passionate defender of federalism. What would you tell your students and what would you tell our listeners about why both uh, Republicans and Democrats should care about federalism and why they should be excited about the decision in Murphy? I think part of the reason, a big part of the reason why we have such um, a toxic political environment now, uh, as well as a dysfunctional Congress and, and broader federal government uh, is because too many decisions uh, are pushed up to Washington. And in a large, diverse, pluralistic society like ours, 
There's no reason that rules about so many swaths of life should be the same in Georgia and New Mexico and Oregon and New York. Um, and that goes for things that we would consider to be controversial, some of which have been referenced, and it goes for things that are much more mundane. I just think that our body politic would be a lot healthier if we practiced a bit more of what Europeans or Catholics, for that matter, call subsidiarity. That is, you make decisions at the most local level possible, whether that's you yourself or your family uh, or your neighborhood or your town or your state, and only the most, uh, the biggest national or international things uh, are the ones that should be handled by Washington. And so translated to the gambling area, uh, I would say with what I presume is Justice Thomas's views, he's the one that, that was saying, uh, wait, uh, uh, hold up, uh, you know, it's not, don't take as a given that Congress can just regulate sports gambling in any which way, that if there is sports gambling taking place uh, purely within a state, uh, that is, you're not allowing you know, uh, uh, phone or, or Internet uh, bets being taken from other states. You're just, you have to go to a particular place to place your bet, and uh, you, know, you get your winnings uh, uh, right there. Um, that's different than if you have uh, a steamboat traveling up the river across many states or, as I said, doing something uh, online or, or by phone or, or something that otherwise crosses states like that. And so I think there could be a difference in, or should be a difference, under a proper reading of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce uh, about sports gambling that's purely intrastate versus that which spills across state borders. Thanks for that. Mike, last word on Murphy. You just taught a really fascinating course on the Federalist Papers and asked your students to channel Hamilton and Madison on contemporary questions. What would Hamilton say about Murphy, and, and in some sense, is, is the progressive embrace of federalism opportunistic for the reasons you suggested? Or, you know, or, or are both parties really Hamiltonians once they're in power and, and Jeffersonians in opposition? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, that is, uh, federalism has always been used opportunistically, which is not to say that one couldn't be a principled believer in federalism. It's it's just very hard, I think, to draw a straight line between the level of government at which one thinks a decision ought to be made and the result. So Ilya mentioned Europe, and it's true that the European Union and some of the states, the federal states like Germany of Europe, have a principle of subsidiarity, but other states like France are unitary states, and it's not clear that their politics are substantially different. I would also point out that most of our most divisive divisions in this country are not so much interstate as they are intrastate between urban and rural areas. Uh, and so you could have the reproduction of toxic politics within states. Um, the way in which our uh, legal system has resolved this since the late 1930s is to say it's up to Congress to decide whether to adopt a policy of decentralization or centralization. And it's Notable that only Justice Thomas dissents on this point. I mean, it's technically a concurrence, but it is pushing this position uh, in these cases that throughout the, the other conservative justices on the Supreme Court have more or less accepted that while it's often not great policy, I would agree with Ilya, to nationalize all of these issues, that Congress is in a better position to make those judgments than the courts are. Uh, and I think Part of the lesson that I learned teaching this class with my students is how 
little even Hamilton and Madison, who were brilliant, brilliant men, designed the system, how little they anticipated about how it was going to work once it got going. And that's a reason to be skeptical, I think, of hard and fast uh, formal rules like the one that Justice Thomas uh, advances in the separate opinion in Murphy. Many thanks for that. Oddly, uh, there's a, I'm looking at a tremendous uh, blow-up portrait of Thomas Jefferson that someone from our exhibit staff uh, gave us uh, in our podcast studio, and he's gazing uh, approvingly uh, about, about your last statement. All Can right. I just interject <laughs> very, very quickly? One thing, you know, Jefferson himself was an opportunistic Federalist. There was grave doubt about the power of the federal government uh, to acquire the Louisiana Purchase, um, because there were all sorts of questions that, uh, under the uh, as the Constitution is written, Jefferson did it because he thought it was in the national interest, and I think there's a kind of institutional inertia that way. An uh, excellent point about uh, equal opportunity opportunism. Uh, we turn now to our Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, once again, these are unanimous or nearly so. We the people listeners, if you're ever tempted to think it's all politics on the Supreme Court, look to the Fourth Amendment where we have uh, bipartisan majorities, often unanimous of justices, ruling uh, against uh, searches and seizures. Ilya, tell us please about Byrd versus United States involving rental cars and Collins against Virginia involving, here's a wonderful law school word, the Fourth Amendment and curtilage. What were, what were the holdings of Byrd, which was unanimous, and Collins, which was uh, decided with only one dissent, that of Justice Alito? Yeah, Byrd involved the question of uh, when you're driving a rental car that's not in your name, the contract isn't in your name, do you have a privacy interest, or can the police just uh, search it regardless of, uh, without a warrant, regardless of whether you uh, consent or not? Uh, here, uh, uh, Mr. Bird uh, was driving in New Jersey, uh, a rental car that was uh, made out to his girlfriend, and um, when they stopped him, they discovered that he had uh, priors, prior convictions, and so they searched the rental car, saying they didn't need his permission, and in his trunk they found body armor and heroin uh, and other contraband. Um, the uh, district court and the appellate court said that he did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy, that the police uh, were fine, uh, and the Supreme Court uh, reversed. Uh, it doesn't automatically, uh, the fact that your name isn't on the rental agreement uh, doesn't automatically uh, 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 defeat your reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, but they remanded uh, for the lower courts to evaluate uh, the government's argument that somebody that intentionally uses uh, another person, a third party, to get a rental car for the purpose of committing crimes, whether that's no better situation than a car thief uh, who does not have an expectation of privacy. So to be clear, if you, stole, if you steal a car that's clearly not yours and not just contractually not, not, not yours, um, you don't have, uh, according to doctrine, uh, an expectation of privacy. The police don't need a warrant to, uh, or your consent to search it. Um, uh, open question about whether he was going to be using the car to commit crime, uh, whether the crime of uh, just transporting illegal substances is, is enough, or whether there has to be something more. Uh, those sorts of questions that will be developed on remand. But just because it's not made out uh, that the, the, your name is on the rent, not on the rental agreement, you might be in breach of contract and owe damages to the rental car company, of course. So buyer beware, listener point uh, on that. Uh, but it doesn't mean uh, that uh, you can't object to a, to a police search. 
And then in Collins versus Virginia, uh, again involving cars, um, uh, although I believe it was a motorcycle involved here, which was sitting on uh, private property on the driveway, uh, could the police approach the house and, and search the vehicle that was parked clearly on private property, but not inside the house? And ultimately, as you said, the court ruled 8-1, to one, which is Justice Alito dissenting. He's generally the most pro-law enforcement uh, justice, um, saying that as long as the vehicle is in the curtilage, which means not just on the property, but close enough, uh, effectively. Typically, curtilage refers to bushes. You know, the police can't go through the bushes and spy on you and, and things like that. But as long as it's in the curtilage, uh, they can't, uh, uh, you do maintain a, a privacy interest, and so they do need uh, a warrant or some other uh, uh, doctrinal reason for searching. Many thanks for that. Um, Mike, uh, what is curtilage? I teach criminal procedure, and I still can't figure out what it is. And, <laughs> and Justice Alito was couldn't really either. He said, why should you need a warrant to walk 30 feet or so up the driveway? An ordinary person of common sense would react to the court's decision the way a Dickens character famously responded uh, about the law being, uh, well, I, I, I'll use the word, his, an idiot, he, he said, because I can't on We the People voice the unspeakable uh, uh, epithet that Dickens used first. So what's what's curtilage and, and why did Alito dissent? And, and, is the, and, then, and then tell us what if anything, is significant about about uh, the two decisions. Sure. So I, I hesitate to enter into this because I don't teach criminal procedure, but my uh, my wife does, and so she will no doubt give me a world of trouble when I get this uh, somewhat wrong. So I'm going to do my best here. Um, my understanding is more or less as Ilya said: the curtilage is the area sort of right outside the home. It's often uh, you know in areas of relatively dense single-family dwellings. It would be the rest of the property that's not enclosed by the building. Uh, but the idea is that there's, you know, part of the property adjacent to the dwelling. Uh, and I, I think the, the best argument for a position like the one taken by Justice Alito is that there is a kind of uh, implicit license that property owners give to all manner of people to come on the curtilage, the you know the uh, depending on whether you ha where your mailbox is, the uh, letter carrier might deliver uh, a letter. You could get a UPS package. Uh, kids from the neighborhood might knock on your door if they're raising money for uh, their uh, their little league team. Um, so that uh, if the idea of a reasonable expectation of prop of privacy, or to the extent that it's about, about uh, property is, well, you know, is this some place that you're keeping away, you know, other people away from, that there's no real difference between the police and these other folks, and everybody else has this license, so why not the police? Um, one of the things I like about Bird is that it recognizes that there's a difference between the general public uh, and the police. Um, you know, you might say that in some sense this case is about, you know, the, the intersection between the automobile exception, uh, which says that, you know, cars and motorcycles are more searchable than other property. Uh, so there's that on the one hand, and then it intersects with uh, the home, which is sort of sacred, and the curtilage is kind of an extension of the home. Uh, and that what the court is doing is sort of being realistic about it and saying, you know, you, you wouldn't have anybody just come up on your property and take a peek under the, the tarp to look at your motorcycle, but you'd be especially nervous if the police were doing that. 
Uh, if I can say a word about the the other case, one of the things I like about what Justice Kennedy does there in the majority opinion in, in Collins, uh, I believe it was Kennedy, um, it, maybe it was Sotomayor, was it, maybe it was Sotomayor, um, yeah, so it's, uh, no, Sotomayor is, is Collins, the the uh, Bird is the other case, and, and Bird, I think, is Kennedy. So in Bird, the the court is asked to base its ruling just on the property interest and to treat the rental agreement as creating a kind of property interest. And that's uh, been a trend in some of the court's recent cases. And Kennedy says, well, property is very helpful, but it's not the be-all and end-all at the core, the Fourth Amendment is also about protecting privacy, and the property interest helps us figure out what the privacy interest is here. Uh, and so, I think they end up getting that one right. So, I, you know, I, I think I like the direction of the court in both of these cases. They're uh, looking at what people's actual expectations are. So, I guess I kind of disagree with Justice Alito. Uh, I think that um, you know maybe it wouldn't be such a good plot for a Dickens novel. Many thanks for that. Mike, we have one final substantive case to discuss, and that is the Epic Systems Core versus Lewis case. There was a vigorous debate between Justice Gorsuch and uh, Justice Ginsburg about the relationship between two labor relations statutes passed within 10 years of each other in the 20s and 30s. Tell us about the debate and the holdings of the justices and the the dissent. Sure. So uh, at issue here is... The, as you say, the intersection between the National Labor Relations Act, uh, which is a uh, sort of charter of workers' rights in various ways, and the Federal Arbitration Act, which uh, has been construed by the court and by its terms, uh, vigorously promotes arbitration. Uh, and in each of these cases, you have employment contracts, which are uh, pretty much given on a take-it-or-leave-it basis by employers to their employees, although presumably there's at least the theoretical possibility of negotiating them. But these are sort of standard contracts uh, in which one of the provisions is an arbitration agreement. And it says that in the event of various disputes, you agree you will go to uh, arbitration. Uh, And it includes the uh, disclaiming of any ability to bring uh, so-called called collective actions. That means either a class action in court or, or even to the extent that it's allowed class arbitration. Uh, and the question in this case was, is that validly enforceable given that the uh, Federal Arbitration Act does seem to have an exception for statutes that say otherwise? And what uh, the Justice Gorsuch says for the court is, well, If you read the language of the NLRA, that's the National Labor Relations Act, it doesn't specifically uh, exempt itself from arbitration. um, And uh, therefore, uh, the Arbitration Act is still valid. Um, You have whatever rights you have as a matter of substance under the NLRA, but you've got to take them to arbitration. And the, um, the Justice uh, Ginsburg says in dissent, well, wait a second, um, the NLRA makes that essentially illegal. And it's a longstanding principle that, of course, you can't 
uh, enforce a contractual agreement uh, that makes something illegal. Now, I want to say something important here, right, which is uh, this is not a constitutional ruling. This is a, an interpretation of two statutes, but there's a kind of constitutional gloss on the case uh, because the dissenters accuse the majority of repeating the Lochner-era uh, approach to contract, right? There's, it says that during that period, roughly the 1890s through 1937, the court was highly solicitous of the liberty of contract, um, and in doing so, it treated formal economic agreements as though they truly reflected people's liberty, but uh, the reality was that a lot of people were acting under economic duress. Justice Gorsuch responds and says, what are you talking about? Um, we overruled Lochner, it's true, um, and that means that we're not saying that the, that the Constitution doesn't require this vision of, of, of contractual liberty. We're just following the will of Congress here. If Congress doesn't like it, it can explicitly make uh, the Na National Labor Relations Act an exception to arbitration. Uh, and so I think in some sense there are ships passing in the night because I read the dissent not to be saying that you've uh, recapitulated exactly what the Lochner era court did as a matter of doctrine, but to say that you're, uh, you've got the sort of same spirit and Justice Gorsuch is saying, no, 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 the real problem was constitutionalizing that. Thank you for that. Uh, Ilya, just a question on Lochner, uh, which, as Mike says, was a part of the case. And Justice Gorsuch did say, like most apocalyptic warnings, this one provokes a false alarm. Uh, you are a distinguished fellow at the Cato Institute, many of whose members have defended uh, Lochner, my, uh, David Bernstein, uh, has written some great stuff for Cato saying that Lochner is a shy and misunderstood case that actually uh, should be embraced. So uh, whether this is constitutional or statutory Lochnerism, uh, should that be a cause for celebration? Um, well, yeah, I, I do think Lochner was, uh, was, was correct, but uh, Gorsuch is also correct uh, in that I don't know what Lochnerism is. Um, I think my only contribution to the commentary over uh, this ruling, because I was, I think, in Australia when it came down, uh, is that uh, if Lochner stands for the idea of judges rewriting statutes as they see fit, then yeah, I'm against Lochner. But that's not what Lochner means. Uh, and uh, exactly, I think it's, uh, you have to approach statutory and constitutional analysis differently. And the real crux here wasn't, um, I mean, regardless of what the dissenters might say, it's simply a disagreement over uh what the uh, what the statute means uh and the the majority read it i guess more narrowly or or rather did not read an implied right to challenge based on uh or or an implied right of of, of class action and and uh uh implicitly coercive agreements to, to arbitrate because you don't have uh, bargaining power etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and the dissenters said, well, it, it, there is kind of that implied right, that that doesn't go away. There are residual clauses. Uh, I mean, you can read the technical uh, analysis for yourself. But that's, that, that's fine. That's, that's a normal type of disagreement over statutory interpretation. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, the, the typical uh, uh, attack on Lochner is simply invalid. You can say that there's not a freedom of contract protected by the Constitution. That's fine. Let's have that debate. 
uh, or economic liberties or, or whatever. Um, but uh, if your charge is that Lochnerism is implementing your own policy preferences, well, that's very different. I don't think uh, very many people are, are in favor of that, whether they're conservative or, or progressive or anyone else. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for a lightning round in this great debate. Uh, and as we wait for the final decisions of the term, including cases involving gerrymandering, the travel ban, voting rights, union fees, and data privacy, Mike, uh, what are, are there any cases we've missed, little ones that you're uh, interested in or any ones that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I want to say a word about a case that was decided uh, this week called Hughes against United States, in which the court was presented with three cert questions. And the first two of those questions, uh, cert question just meaning the question for review, the first two of those questions were what should the procedure be for lower courts, state courts and lower federal courts, for figuring out what the rule is when the Supreme Court decides a case, but it doesn't produce a majority opinion? And the particulars was what happens when there was a 4-4-1 split. Uh, there's an old case called uh, Marx in which the court had said, well, you're supposed to uh, apply the narrowest ground on which there was a majority. And there's a whole lot of confusion in the lower courts about what that means. So we thought Hughes was going to clear it up. But instead of clearing that up, what the court does in Hughes is say, well, you know, the old case where we split 4-4-1, now we've got a majority, so we've decided that. Don't worry about this other issue. And I was appalled by that because, um, you know, one of the jobs of the Supreme Court, it's a pretty mundane job, but it's also important, is to provide guidance for state judges and lower federal court judges as they apply federal law. And if they can't figure out what federal law is, they're not going to be able to do that. So uh, it seems to me that they sometimes forget why they take cases in the first place, which is to resolve important issues. Uh, and an issue can be important even if it's not a hot-button social issue. There's no ideological valence one way or the other to Marx or any of its alternatives. Uh, so I just wish they would have uh, remembered their, their guidance function in that case. Many thanks for that. Ilya, last word to you. Any cases we've missed or any that you are looking forward to as the term prepares to end? Uh, well, I guess, I guess Janice, the, the uh, agency fees to non-union members in the public sector is, is the biggie and the travel ban, as you mentioned. Uh, South Dakota versus Wayfair, about uh, whether states can charge sales tax on businesses that, are, that have no physical presence uh, in the state. Uh, that would be big for uh, all sorts of uh, digital economy uh, players as well as uh, tax software uh, companies. A separation of powers case, Lucia versus uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, about the uh, constitutionality of administrative law judges in the SEC, whether they need to be appointed by the president. Uh, uh, the court wasn't interested in the removal power, but anyways, a structural issue about uh, administrative law judges, uh, which is interesting, the gerrymandering cases. Uh, Benesek out of uh, out of uh, Maryland and, and Gill out of Wisconsin. Uh, is there some? Does the Constitution say anything about partisan gerrymandering? If, even if uh, if we don't like it, um, I think I think that's about it. And 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 Carpenter, of course, the the digital the digital privacy. Do the police need a warrant to, to uh, look at your uh, the data of of the cell towers that you're pinging off of? as you're walking around. That, that could end up being the most significant case of the term from a legal doctrine perspective, especially given that Masterpiece Cake Shop 
uh, ended up uh, uh, being uh, kind of flat. Many thanks for that. Uh, before I sincerely thank our two superb uh, Dream Team uh, uh, debaters, I want to issue this uh, friendly homework assignment to We the People listeners. You've heard Mike and Ilya talk about the reasoning in the Masterpiece Cake case and how Justice Kennedy, Justice Kagan, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, and Justice Ginsburg all had very different reasons for reaching uh, in the first case, is the, the same result, and in the dissent's case, a, a different result. So the homework is read the opinions and uh, read them with an open mind. And then if you actually do this, write to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and just tell me which one you found most persuasive and why. There's nothing more invigorating than reading a great Supreme Court case and choosing among competing constitutional reasonings. It will help you separate your political views from your constitutional views, which is what we're trying to do here with the We the People podcast. And if you take the time to read Masterpiece Cake, I would love to hear what you think. And with that, I want to thank the great Mike Dorf and Ilya Shapiro for a vigorous, illuminating, and yeasty discussion of uh, the great cases that uh, have and, been decided and, and so far. And even with the sports gambling case, a vigorous discussion. <laughs> An absolutely vigorous discussion. And we'll hope to have them back very soon, perhaps to discuss the final cases of the term. Mike, Ilya, as always, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Ugana Etze, Madison Poulter, and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. We the People listeners, as you know, the Constitution Center is thrilled to welcome thought leaders from across the constitutional spectrum to our home in Philadelphia nearly every week to discuss and debate the constitutional issues of our time. Check the videos out online, but when you can, come to the Constitution Center in Philadelphia to see the discussions live. And on Thursday, June 21st, I'm thrilled that former Deputy National Security Advisor and one of President Barack Obama's closest aides, Ben Rhodes, will be at the Constitution Center discussing his new book, a behind-the-scenes account of some of the most consequential and controversial moments of the Obama presidency. It's been getting a lot of press, and Mark Bowden, the best-selling author and national correspondent for The Atlantic, will moderate. Join us in person or watch the live stream online. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate for more information. And finally, as you well know, this is the important part. It's all important, but this is the most important part. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. What's important about that is that we rely on the generosity of people from across the country. We're inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. It is vitally and urgently important that you become a member of the National Constitution Center to give us not only your treasure, but your time and your commitment and to signal your passionate commitment to joining us in spreading the light about the Constitution across America. To learn more, visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rowe.